Good morning, church. How are we doing? Good. Plot twist, it's Jeremiah, not Hebrews. Uh, and I'll explain more in a while. Uh, my name's Aaron. I'm one of the pastors. If we've not yet had a chance to meet, really glad that you are here. And let me just give a little bit of context, and I'll actually explain much, much more as we go through the teaching time today. <laughs> we have been studying the book of Hebrews now uh, for some months, since about September. And congratulations, Sound City. We're halfway through. We're halfway through the book of Hebrews. It's pretty uh, remarkable. Only took us seven months. So we're blazing right through it. Uh, we are going to spend some time in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, to see, basically to set up what's going to come the next few weeks for us in the book of Hebrews. And so I invite you to turn there, read along, or if you want to follow along on the screen, you can do so as well. I'll read these verses, we'll pray, and then we've just got a lot of material to cover today. So I'm going to begin to teach uh, quickly, and I pray that you can take good notes today. Verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Father God, I do thank you that you've given us your word, the written word, the word of truth, uh, the word that is our firm foundation. And God, we, uh, as, as a local church, Sound City Bible Church, God, we want to be a church that is grounded on the word of God. We don't want to be uh, a church that merely talks about our ideas or, or our opinions or man's wisdom. We, we need truth from God. We need truth from heaven itself. And so, God, we're so thankful for this word. Uh, I pray for myself today, God, would you help me to teach with truthfulness and with clarity, that which you've laid on my heart to teach. God, I pray for all of us. Would you give us soft and teachable hearts? Would you send the Holy Spirit right now to bring the words of the scriptures to life in our hearts and to do a work in us, to transform us, that we might look more like Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Have any of you ever walked in in the middle of a conversation and you're listening to the conversation going and you're thinking, I have no idea what's, what's being talked about here and I'm afraid if I was to jump in and try to talk, I would uh, seem like some sort of a fool because I've missed the whole beginning of the conversation. You ever had that experience? It can be a very disorienting experience. I actually feel like I have that experience almost on a daily basis. I have young children and they often have other young children. I think I have something like 24 young children in my house this weekend. And uh, I, I, you know, I'll walk by the bedroom, I'll hear them playing something and it's like, no, this time I get to be Russell Wilson. Wilson, and you're going to be the fairy godmother. And I'm like, I don't know what game they're playing. A, it sounds awesome. But B, I don't know if I can jump in and, and start to chat with them because I think I've missed some backstory here. A little bit like that is our experience with the book of Hebrews. For some of you, maybe you're, you're newer to the church and we're diving into the middle of a book. We have been going line by line, verse by verse through the book of Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews is a dense, a, a very thick book. And so you might have, be having that experience jumping into the book of Hebrews with us. And so I hope today helps get you caught up to the conversation. 
But for others of you, just opening the Bible, period, feels like you're jumping into the middle of a conversation. There's all sorts of references. There's all sorts of quotations. There's all sorts of backstory, things that you just don't even understand, things that you don't even really know, uh, and, and you're maybe kind of confused by the Bible. And so I hope that today will be helpful. And <clears throat> I mean this uh, very, very practical for any and all of you to know the Bible, to know the Word of God. And let me just start by saying this. The Bible references itself thousands and thousands of times. I actually have a, a, an infographic I want to put up on the screen and show you. This is something that uh, a group of people out there on the internet did where they took a representation of every single verse that's in the Bible, starting in the left, those little white lines down represent verses in the Bible, and then all of the different colored arcs represent times where various authors in the Bible refer to other verses in the Bible. Isn't that cool? You can find that. I'll, I'll link to uh, this stuff up on our church website so you can find these things later. But this is just a visual representation of just how often the Bible refers to itself. In particular, the New Testament authors are always quoting from the Old Testament, trying to show us how the Old Testament all now makes sense in the light of what Jesus has done. There are many, many quotes uh, from the from the New Testament to the Old Testament, and there are many quotes in the book of Hebrews in particular. And the, 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 the overview, if, you're, if you don't know the Old Testament, as you're reading through the book of Hebrews, you might be confused. What's he talking about? What's he referring to? Let me just remind you of a few of the things we've already seen thus far in the book of Hebrews. We've seen the author of Hebrews quote from Genesis. He's talked about Abraham and Melchizedek and this battle with the kings and, and how Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High God and the king of Salem, came out and served Abraham wine and bread and how Abraham gave him a tenth of everything and how Melchizedek is a picture of Jesus. He's a priest and a king like Jesus. The author of Hebrews is quoted from uh, the book of Exodus when he's talked about Moses leading the people out of slavery in Egypt when they get out into the, the wilderness and they start griping and complaining and saying, God, we need, you to, we need you to provide food for us. And so then God provides them bread. And then they say, well, we're tired of bread. We want some meat. And so God provides them meat. And then they're like, we want steak and we want filet mignon and bacon. Well, they couldn't do that because they're Jewish. You can't have bacon. But you get the idea. Like they're, they're just complaining at God. We, we, want, we want more from you than what you're giving to us. Freedom is not enough. Relationship with you is not enough. And so the author of Hebrews has told us, don't be like those people. Don't be like those people who are hard-hearted and rebel against God, and then they don't get to enter into the promised land. The author of Hebrews quotes from Leviticus and from Deuteronomy, and he talks about the priests and how all of these sacrifices were offered, and they would burn incense, and they would have worship services, and they would gather in the temple, and how all of that has been pointing us to Jesus, and Jesus is the last sacrifice, and so the temple isn't needed anymore, and it's becoming obsolete, and he says that all of that is fulfilled in Jesus. The author of Hebrews is quoted from the Psalms extensively. Actually, just this morning, uh, on my way to the church building this morning, I was listening to some Psalms on the Bible app, and I think there were three different Psalms that I listened to that I was like, oh yeah, Hebrews is quoted that one. Oh yeah, Hebrews is quoted that one. I heard multiple quotations uh, from Hebrews in the Psalms today as I was just listening to him. But in particular, he's focused on David and how David was the king who said there's another king that's coming. There's a, a promised king, an even greater king that's going to come. And his 
name is Jesus. And now, as we get into Hebrews chapter 8, he's going to quote from the prophet Jeremiah. He's going to quote from the prophet Jeremiah, who was a prophet during the time of the exile, when the people had been conquered and led out of their homeland and taken away into captivity. The author of Hebrews is going to quote this big chunk that we just read, these, these five verses. In fact, it's the longest Old Testament quote in the entire New Testament. It's going to be like half of the chapter, half of Hebrews chapter 8. Maybe not quite that much, but a significant portion. And so before we continue on in Hebrews, I want to just take some time and make sure we understand what he's saying about the book of Jeremiah, what he's saying really about the Bible in general. Like I said a minute ago, I hope that this is a really practical and helpful teaching for you so that you can see the way that the Bible all works together as one unified story about Jesus. So let's go back into our verses in Jeremiah 31. Let's look at these verses for a minute. Let me just explain to you what's being said. Now, now by way of reminders, Hebrews was written after Jesus, after his death, after his resurrection, after his ascension to the right hand of the Father. And the author of Hebrews is looking back and, then, and he's looking back at all these scriptures and he's saying, hey, by the way, they were all looking forward to Jesus. Jeremiah was written hundreds of years before Jesus ever came. And this is what the prophet Jeremiah says. It says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. So they're looking forward. When I will make a new covenant. A covenant is, is an agreement, a, a sacred agreement between two parties. God says, I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the, hand, the land of Egypt. My covenant, listen to these words, that they broke. Let's pause for a second there. What's the covenant that he's talking about? He's talking about the covenant that God made with the people of Israel through Moses at Mount Sinai. God saved the people. He redeemed the people. He pulled them out and he said, you get to be my people. I'm going to be your God. Here's the agreement. You worship me only. I love, care for, protect, and, and help in all ways you. There's the problem. What's the problem, church? They all broke it. They were continually hard-hearted against God. They were continually rebellious against God, even though God provided for every one of their needs, even though God had demonstrated his power in many, many ways, they broke his covenant. How many of you know that you and I are covenant breakers as well? That we've rebelled against God, that we've not lived our lives in worship to him. And look at what it says, that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Though I was their husband, what he's saying is, I love my people the way that a husband should love his wife. I want to be devoted to you, and I want you to be devoted to me. How many of you know that there is a good type of jealousy? There's a very good type of jealousy. The Bible actually says that God is a jealous God. Our jealousy is often selfish and sinful, amen? But God's jealousy is perfect. You know what God's jealousy says? I don't want to share your love with someone else. For those of you who are spouses, if you're a married couple, your husband, your wife, you don't want to share your wife's devotion or love or affection with someone else. You don't want them to, to cheat on you with another person. That's what God is saying. You're, you're breaking of the covenant. is like you're cheating on me. You're committing adultery. The Bible actually uses some very graphic language at times about our unfaithfulness to God. 
So what God's, what's God going to do about it? Is he going to divorce them? You've cheated on me? Guess I'm going to divorce you, find a new group of people. No, he says, I'm going to make a new covenant with you. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. Sound City, what was the first covenant law written on? Not a trick question. You've all seen the movie. Stone tablets. And if you ever wanted to know what God's law is, you had to access the stone tablets. You go up and get the stone tablets. Like, you shall not commit murder. That's right. I got it now. You shall not commit murder. But God says, I'm going to do something different. We're not going to write those laws on stone tablets anymore. I'm going to actually write it directly on your heart. Hey, friends, if you're a Christian, guess what? God has done a rewiring in your heart where now your desires are actually starting to change. Actually, quick show of hands. How many of you have seen over the time that you've walked with Jesus, sins that used to be attractive to you are no longer attractive? How many of you have seen that? Isn't that good news? That means you're part of the new covenant, that God is rewriting his law on your heart and actually causing your desires to be oriented in that direction. I will be their God. They shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord. Does that remind you of what we've already been hearing in Hebrews the last few months? The author of Hebrews has been, been very adamant to say, you don't need a priest. You don't need a preacher. You don't need a neighbor. You don't need someone more spiritual than you. If you are a Christian, you have one high priest named Jesus and he gives you direct access to God. And that's what's already promised hundreds of years before. You don't have to go through your neighbor. You don't have to go through your brother. You don't need to have anyone else give you access to God. If you are a Christian, Jesus has opened up ultimate access to God. And I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. When God uses that language of I will remember your sin no more, it isn't, it isn't that he's gonna have a memory lapse what it means is I'm not going to treat you like that sin ever happened. We're going we're gonna to act as though that didn't even take place. In fact, God's going to say, I'm going to treat you with all of the same love and affection that I have for my perfect son, Jesus Christ. And I will forgive your iniquities. How many of you could use some forgiveness from God for things that you've done or things you haven't done or things you wanted to do and failed to do? This is the new covenant. Now, what the author of Hebrews is saying, and we'll explain much more of this next week because I, I wanna take this in a little bit different direction, but what the author of Hebrews is saying is all of these promises that God made through the prophet Jeremiah hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born, they've all come true in Jesus. You want your sins forgiven? You go to Jesus. You want direct access to God? You go to Jesus. You want to have your heart and your desires changed so that you don't love sin anymore and you start to love God more? You go to Jesus. It's all Jesus. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. In fact, here's, here's the point of this whole teaching today is this. The Bible is one unified story and the hero of the whole thing is Jesus. He's the hero of the whole story. That's the point of, of what I'm really trying to say to you. And in fact, what I'd like to do is in line with that, I'd like to take some time and do something a little bit different. I'd like to just share with you, practically speaking, what the Bible is and why it is so important to us as Christians. 
Like I said at the beginning, I hope that this is intensely practical for many of you. For some of you, this might be review, but it's good review. It's good for you to know and to remember these things. For some of you, this might be brand new. This might be things you've never heard or, or considered before. But in light of the way that the author of Hebrews is using the Old Testament, in light of how many different quotations there are going back and forth, I thought it would just be very helpful for us as a church, especially for some of you who might be new and have just joined up since Easter, and you're wondering, why is the Bible such a big deal to this church? Sound City Bible Church. It's right there in the name. I want to answer those questions for you. So let me just start for a moment by talking about what the Bible is. What the Bible is. The first thing we need to know about the Bible is this. It is not just a book. It's actually a whole library. The Bible is not one book. It is how many books? Bonus points. 66. Very good. I'll make sure Pastor Travis gets you some fruit snacks after the service. Right? 66 books. And there are multiple authors. In fact, there are multiple authors over literally thousands of years of time. There are multiple authors who were, who were rich and powerful, like, like King Solomon. And there are authors who are absolutely impoverished and, and destitute, like the prophet Jeremiah, for example. There are, there are anonymous authors. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. We don't know who wrote certain books in the Old Testament, like Judges or Chronicles, for example. But we do know that it's remarkably unified, despite all of that diversity, despite being over thousands of years of period, multiple authors, multiple you know, socioeconomic statuses. It's very unified around the theme of the redemptive work of God. There are multiple genres. There are different genres in the Bible. There are some books, like the book of Genesis in the Old Testament, or Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts in the New Testament, that are history or narrative. They tell us a story. How many of you love the stories? How many of you grown-ups are like, I love reading my kids the Bible because I just love the stories, right? There's poetry and song, sections like the Psalms or the Book of Lamentations. They're poems. And you read a poem differently than you read a story, don't you? There's wisdom literature, the Book of Proverbs in the Old Testament, or in the New Testament, the Book of James is sometimes called the Proverbs of the New Testament. Lots of practical wisdom for how you should live your life. As, as, a, as an elder team, we gather together early on Wednesday mornings, and what we've been doing is just reading one chapter of the Book of Proverbs together every single week because we know that we need God's wisdom to lovingly lead and care for this church. So there's wisdom, practical help. There's law, like in the books of uh, you know, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. There's prophecy in the Old Testament or apocalypse in, in the Old and the New. Apocalypse just simply means an unveiling or a, a, basically a peek behind the curtain. When we think of apocalypse in our culture, we often think of like meteors falling from the sky, but that's not really what the word apocalypse means. It simply means a, a look behind the curtain, a, a peek behind the scenes. What's really going on? That's prophecy and apocalypse. And then there's letters of instruction, or you'll hear those called epistles. That's just a fancy word that means a letter. Uh, like the letters of Paul or the letters of Peter. Multiple authors, multiple genres, two major divisions. The Old Testament, which was all written before the time of Jesus. It was written in the language of Hebrew. And the New Testament, which was written after Jesus. And it was written in the language of Greek, Koine Greek, the common language of the day. So that's just a little information about what this is. It's a remarkable book. It's already unique in all of literature because it's not actually a book. It's a library. It's a miniature library of 66 books, a collection of quite diverse sources, yet the unity is just amazing. That's point two, as I've already said. I'll say it again. It's a unified story whose hero is Jesus. Isn't it remarkable that you could have 
dozens of different authors and thousands of years and multiple geographic regions, and yet the whole thing all comes around this idea that God is going to save his people through the redemptive work of a servant, a divine servant, a son, a king. And ultimately, we see it in the person of Jesus. And you have to remember that the first Christians the first Christians were, were Jewish people who were very steeped in the Old Testament scriptures. They knew those scriptures so incredibly well. And so when Jesus shows up on the scene, they're, they're basically kind of having like a, well, no, duh. Now, of course it all makes sense. Of course everything was pointing to Jesus. Look, he died. He rose again. This all makes sense. I'll, I'll read one quote to you from a scholar named Donald Hagner. He says this, the New Testament writers were thoroughly immersed in the Holy Scriptures, which had been handed down to them by their forefathers. They lived and breathed the content of these writings, particularly the recital of God's saving activity on behalf of Israel, and the covenant promises concerning the future of God's people, that, that God has already saved them from Egypt and he's going to save them more in the future from their enemies. When they were confronted with the ministry of Jesus, its proclamation by word and deed of the presence of the kingdom, they were, as we would say, programmed to understand it as the consummation of God's saving activity and the fulfillment of the covenant promises. It just made sense to them. Well, of course, it all makes sense in Jesus. This is where it's all been leading. Thus, when they came to narrate the story of Christ in the Gospels and the meaning of that story in the epistles, these writers continually made use of the Old Testament to show that what had so recently taken place in their midst was, in fact, the goal of the Old Testament anticipation. All that is a very fancy and scholarly way of saying it just made sense to them. Jesus is the point. The whole story has been leading up to this moment. Third thing I want you to understand about the Bible is that it is both divine and human. So some of you may struggle with the idea that the Bible is divine. Some of you may say, well, this is just a collection of man's ideas about God. This is just what people have written down, their thoughts about God, their stories about God. Well, that's not what the Bible itself actually claims. Second Peter, the apostle Peter, one of Jesus' closest companions said, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So these are not man's ideas. The Bible makes that claim explicitly. These are words that come directly from God. Martin Luther said, if any man would hear God speak, let him read Holy Scripture. Sometimes people say, oh, I just wish God would talk to me. He is all the time, right here. I'm glad that God sometimes speaks to my heart and to yours. That is absolutely wonderful. I believe that God still does that. But if we want a guaranteed word from God, we open the pages of the scripture and we can hear him speaking. These are not just man's words or ideas about God, but these are divine words. And yet at the same time, these human authors, they weren't like uh, ghostwriting. You know what ghostwriting is, right? They're not just sitting there and all of a sudden they're like, like, you know, like men in black, an alien takes over their body and their hand just kind of writes. No, these are human authors. You can see their personalities coming through the pages of the scriptures. The different authors make claims. You know, Paul says, this is me writing with my own hand. Or Solomon says, I, Solomon, the teacher, will instruct you. These, these people are, 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 are human beings. They're not taken over in a uh, kind of a ghostwriting sort of sense, but they spoke from their own thoughts. They spoke from their own personalities, but it's God, in fact, sovereignly speaking through them. Isn't that remarkable? And it's actually remarkable. It's good because it helps us to understand how we can relate. 
Man, if God can use a messed up guy like David, if God can use a, a fearful person like, like Ruth or Naomi, if God can do things in these people's lives, then surely he can work in my life. Isn't that amazing? So the Bible is both divine and human. And some of you will struggle on one side or the other of that equation, but I urge you to consider what the Bible itself claims. Number four, the Bible is living and active, not dead history. These aren't just stories, so we have something to read before we go to bed at night. The Bible, in fact, also makes the claim that these words are living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. We read that a few months ago in Hebrews chapter 4. Let me, let me ask you this question. How many of you, those of you who have been Christians maybe for a while, you've read the Bible, and you're reading over some passage that you've read before, and it's familiar, and all of a sudden, God just gets your heart in kind of a totally new way. Anybody ever had that experience? Yeah, a bunch of you. Yeah, it's like, I've read that before. I've heard that before. Why am I now all of a sudden, you know, crying? Or why am I all of a sudden convicted? Or all of a sudden incredibly encouraged? Well, it's because God's word is living. God's word is living, not dead history. Number five, the Bible is truthful and inerrant. Oh boy, our, our culture, our society doesn't like this one at all. It's full of contradictions. It's full of mistakes. It's full of errors. The Bible says multiple, multiple, multiple times that the word of the Lord is true, the word of the Lord is pure. One example from Psalms 12, 6, the word of the Lord are pure words like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. In the Bible, the word seven, the number seven often represents perfection, completion. The words of the Lord are true and inerrant. Now, we would say, as the elder team of Sound City Bible Church, that the, the Bible is inerrant in the original manuscripts, meaning when they were originally written down, they were free from any errors. Uh, it's easy to see that sometimes copying errors have happened over the years, but we are, are, are very, like, for example, I have typos in my slides sometimes, right? Like, sometimes people copy things wrong or you make an error, but what's remarkable is the sheer number of manuscripts that we have. I mean, it is, it is staggering. It's on an order of magnitude unlike anything else in all of literature. If you want to read the works of, you know, Alexander the Great or, or Socrates or whatever, we have, you know, this many manuscripts. With the Bible, we have a stage full of manuscripts and we can look and we can compare and we can see, oh, that looks like one guy misspelled a word there. One guy said instead of Jesus Christ, he wrote Christ Jesus and flipped it around a little bit there. We can see with remarkable precision what the original authors wrote. And it ought to give you great confidence in the word of God. Let me just say this. A lot of this stuff, I'm moving very quickly, I know, because two and a half hours is already gonna be a really long sermon, so I don't wanna keep you for three. I'm just kidding. Uh, but we have, I'm gonna put all sorts of links and things up on the website if you wanna study this out more and to understand more, to wrestle through. I'm gonna give you book recommendations, article recommendations, some podcasts, things to listen to, because this is such an important topic, and I wanna make sure that, that you all have access to, to more material so you can really think and wrestle with these thoughts. Number six, the Bible is understood by the help of the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to understand the Bible. Now, on, on one level, the Bible is not a magic book and it's not written in some language that we don't understand. People can read it and can understand it on one level. In fact, there are people who work at universities, who are scholars, who are professors, who have you know, doctorates and degrees, who know the Bible better than I do, know the Bible better than you do, but they don't love and serve and worship Jesus. Why? Because they don't really understand it. They understand it at one level, but it hasn't gotten into their hearts. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 2 says, 
No one knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person which is in him, and so also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. We've received the Holy Spirit that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. We need the Holy Spirit's help to truly understand at the heart level, at the deepest level, what the Bible is saying to us. That's why almost every single time that I stand up here to preach, I say or I pray, God, would you send the Holy Spirit to bring these words to life? Because without the Holy Spirit, all you have is one energetic, loud dude talking to you. And that's not what you need. You need God's work in your heart by his Holy Spirit. That's what we need. And thank God that he's given us his Holy Spirit. And if you're a Christian, you've been given the Holy Spirit. And guess what? That means you can start to understand the Bible. It's very good news. Number seven, the Bible is authoritative. Uh-oh. Oh. If our culture doesn't like truthful and inerrant, our culture hates this one. Authoritative. 2 Timothy 3 Verses 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof. Here it is, ready? Correction and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Here's the deal. We, in our culture, like to live our lives in authority over the word of God. If I disagree with the Bible, the Bible must be wrong, and I'm just going to do whatever I want. And when there's parts of the Bible that I like, I'll use those to support my janky grab bag theology. But I don't, I don't want to submit. What you have to understand is, is all authority in heaven and earth belongs to God. Amen? There's no authority in the entire universe that, that doesn't ultimately belong to God. The Bible doesn't have authority because, uh, because you know, this, this book is somehow magical. The Bible has authority because God exercises his authority through the Bible. It is God's authority, and he uses the scriptures to teach us, to correct us, to train us, to hold us in line. Let, let me ask you this question. How many of you have ever gone to the grocery store? You get there, and you forget why you were there, and so you end up buying something ridiculous. <laughs> that ever happened to you? Happens to me like every single week. So you know what I do now? My wife and I, we have an app and it's like a shared grocery list app and we can add things to it. And then when I get to the grocery store, I've got this list, it's written down. I can remember it. Hallelujah. I don't have, well, maybe I still buy ridiculous things, but at least I also buy the things I went to the store to buy. I am convinced that God, amen. Thank you. I have my wife very loudly from the front row. <laughs> I am convinced that God has given us the written word because your brain and my brain leaks and we forget and we start to live life on our own terms and on our own authority. We say, I want to do this. I don't feel like doing that. And so we have this written word, this unchanging written word that we come into contact with. And when we come into contact or conflict with it, I should say, we're faced with a choice. Am I going to submit to God's authority, the authority that he delegates through his word, or am I going to choose to be in authority over God's word? And let me also just say this. We really need to practice the, the idea of, of reading the Bible within good context. It, has, it, is, it grieves me, but it happens. Many people will take scriptures or take verses out of the Bible and will use them in a non-biblical way. Paul actually talks about it. He says the law is good if it's used lawfully. Sometimes people have been just beat up or been, been told things that are just not true because verses were taken out of context. I remember one time I was on a website 
And uh, it was a you know, website that had like the Bible verse of the day up at the top. And I kid you not, the Bible verse of the day said, all these things I will give you if you bow down and worship me. And I'm thinking, hold on, I, that sounds familiar. Hold on. Oh yeah, that's Satan tempting Jesus in the desert. You might need a context checker for your Bible verse of the day header on your website, right? Or, or the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. Oh, you know, the Bible says, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. It says that. Yeah, no, no, not sweet. Because what the Apostle Paul is actually saying is, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. We've got no hope. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, so we need to change our lives. Big difference, right? So when we say that, I'm watching you, Sam. When we, when we, oh man, I didn't expect this much audience participation. You guys are, you guys are helping write the sermon as we go. When we say that the Bible is authoritative, we must remember that the authority comes from God. And we don't like to, very often in our independent-minded culture, we don't like to submit to authority. But I'm telling you that when you seek to live your life under the authority of the word of God, you will experience blessing because God knows how your life was meant to go. God knows how your life was meant to be lived. And when we live in sin, we are using our lives, our bodies, our souls for things that we were never intended for. And God's way is truthful and best, and leads to the greatest joy. It's actually at this point where, where an objection comes up. And I want to spend, there's probably actually a couple hundred objections could come up here. But one in particular that I want to address, because when it comes to the submission of the word of God and our lives being lived by the word of God, there are many in our culture that would say, you Christians just pick and choose which parts of the Bible you want to live your lives by. Let me read you an example I actually stumbled across this week from a website called Alternet, which is by no stretch of the imagination a Christian website. This is what they say. Some Bible-believing Christians play fast and loose with their sacred text. When it suits their purposes, they treat it like the literally perfect word of God. <clears throat> then when it suits their other purposes, they conveniently ignore the parts of the Bible that are inconvenient. Many Christians simply ignore the eating advisories, the, the food laws in the Old Testament, even though they claim that edicts like the Ten Commandments and the anti-queer clobber verses still apply. Have, anybody, have any of you heard that accusation from people that you know or, or people that you're in relationship with? You Christians, you, you eat pork, you wear clothing with mixed fabrics, you don't follow certain laws in the Old Testament, and yet you still say that Things like homosexuality are outside of God's design and plan for, for human sexuality. Why, why is that? Why are you guys picking and choosing? Why are you saying one thing is off limits and another thing is not? You're just, you're hypocritical. Might I first submit to you that there is a rebuke in here that every Bible-believing Christian needs to hear? Because we have been, at times, as individuals and collectively as the church throughout history, wildly inconsistent. And if you can't say amen, you can say ouch. But we have, at times, picked and chosen which verses we want to listen to, which verses we want to ignore. Some of you in this room have been confronted by people who love you, maybe leaders, maybe fellow church members. They've said, God's word says to not do this or that. And you've said, you know what? I'm just going to do it. I've had those conversations with people. I've sat in coffee shops. I've sat in my office and shown them, this is what God's word says. This is how you're to live your life. And they said, yeah, I just don't want to. So we do need to hear a rebuke, don't we, church? Yet at the same time, 
I would say if at times Christians are guilty of, of misreading the Bible, uh, then, then non-Christians and skeptics and critics are equally guilty of not reading the Bible within its proper context. Let me say a few things briefly about that. First of all, we really need to use proper hermeneutics. If you're looking for a big $10 word to use at your company party this week, you're welcome. Hermeneutics, there it is. Hermeneutics means the way we read a book. And like I said earlier, first of all, there are multiple genres in the Bible. You read a story differently than you read the law or you read a letter. So just because Judas went out and hanged himself, you wouldn't then jump in and say, so go and do likewise, right? You read stories differently than you read poetry. You read poetry differently than you read prophecy. We have to learn how to rightly read the Bible with its different genres. We have to learn how to read the Bible in the context of this story, there's a, there's a change in the story. There, God's, God's work in the nation of Israel is, is very similar to, but is very different in some ways than what he does with the people of the church in the New Testament. And it explicitly talks about that. In fact, that's my second point, is there's lots of areas of continuity and discontinuity between the Old and the New Testament. You see in the Old Testament, you shall not murder. You see in the New Testament, you shall not murder. It's the same. It's continuous. That didn't change. You see in the Old Testament, I'll give you another uh, example as if uh, the talk about you know, same-sex marriage and such didn't make you uncomfortable enough. Let's talk about circumcision. In the Old Testament, there is an absolute 100% black and white commandment from God that all males, all boys of the tribe of the people of Israel must be circumcised on the eighth day. And if they are not circumcised, they are excluded from fellowship in the people of God. It is a big deal. It is a really big deal. You get to the New Testament and people from all sorts of nations on the earth start becoming Christians. They start wanting to join with this group of, of Jewish believers at the time, primarily who were worshiping Jesus as the Messiah. They say, hey, we'd like to join. We believe that God has raised Jesus from the dead. We want to be a part of this amazing people, this amazing movement. Hey, we want to talk to you about this one thing though, this circumcision, because we're grown adult men and we're wondering if there's a past that we can get on that for obvious reasons. The apostles met together. You can read about it in Acts chapter 15. They met together in Jerusalem. They talked, they prayed, they sought the scriptures, they sought the Lord. And they said, you are right. Circumcision was a sign for the people of Israel. It is not binding on Gentile believers. And if people want to become Christians, they don't need to get circumcised because the whole point anyways is that God wants to do a circumcision work in their heart like we already read about in Jeremiah chapter 31. It's not about external markings. It's about having your heart changed. So everybody gets to be a part of the people of God no sexual sin, they said. Well, that one carries over. Okay, got it. No eating meat with the blood strangled in it. No eating food that was sacrificed to idols. But other than that, those Old Testament circumcision ritual laws, they don't apply. There's elements of continuity and discontinuity. And, and, and here's the thing. We have to remember these testaments, the old and the new, they must be read together. I love the way that St. Augustine says it. He says, the old, sorry, the new is in the old concealed and the old is in the new revealed. What that means, when you're reading the Old Testament, New Testament stuff's in there. It's just concealed. It's a little hard to see. And when you're reading the New Testament, man, there's Old Testament stuff all over the place. It's, it's like one of my, one of my uh, Bible school professors called the New Testament the answer key to the Bible. So the Old Testament was the Bible. The New Testament's the answer key. Now it all makes sense. You get to see how it all works out. I love that idea that the old and the new work together. One is more concealed, more shadows, and one is full Technicolor, you get to see it all on display. On this subject of, of how do we understand which laws to follow, which laws not to follow, let me just offer you three things all too briefly. I wish I could spend much, much more time, but I want to give you three um, approaches that you can use as you think through these ideas. 
The first one is this. I want you to think about this approach, the three types of law approach. This is kind of the classic reformed position for the last, oh, four or 500 years in, in the church. What they would say is there's three basic types of law. There's moral law, just right and wrong, Ten Commandments, things like that, murder, stealing, sexual immorality. There's civil law, you know, the laws of the land. You can't build a fence on your neighbor's property. You can't do this or that. Uh, you know, things that we live under, under the, the state of Washington or the city of Edmonds or Linwood or wherever you live. There's civil laws and there's ceremonial laws. You read about, you have to do the sacrifices this way and the priest has to wear this certain type of clothes and it has to happen on this particular day of the year. What, what the reformed position has been is that all of those ceremonial laws are done away with is because they're fulfilled in Christ. Christ is the priest. Christ is the temple. Christ is the sacrifice. We don't come to church and bring goats to offer sacrifices anymore. Amen. Especially all of you who help stick around and clean up after services. You're like, praise the Lord for that. Worship looks different. All of those types of laws are fulfilled in Jesus. All of those civil laws, those were for the nation of Israel, a theocracy, but now God has sent the gospel out to all the nations of the earth, and so we don't live under those civil types of laws, but the ones that still apply are the moral laws. The ones that still apply are the moral laws. I think this is a perfectly valid approach, a perfectly valid way to think through it. I think there are some weaknesses to this approach, particularly the concern that you might be importing a framework on the Bible that it doesn't explicitly make clear, but I think there's nothing inherently wrong with this type of approach if that helps you think through the Old and the New Testament. A second approach I'll share with you is the two types of law approach, even simpler, creation laws and redemption laws. Creation laws are things that are just inherent because they're part of how we were created. We don't murder because people are created in the image and likeness of God. We don't commit adultery because we were created for faithfulness. We don't, uh, we don't steal because people have dignity and value and worth, and to steal from them is to, to take those things from them. Those are all creation laws. And then there are certain laws that God put in place specifically to point us to redemption. One example would be Passover. Again, in the Old Testament, God said, you have to celebrate Passover. You have to. You have to do it on this day, on this time, in this way. But then in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says, yeah, Passover was serving to point us to the sacrifice of Jesus. And he says it to the Corinthians. He says, now we keep the festival by getting rid of the leaven of meat, of ye, uh, the, sorry, rewind. We celebrate the Passover by getting rid of the leaven of malice and envy. He says, if you want to keep the Passover, the way you do it now is getting rid of malice and envy. It looks different. So this is a slightly different approach. Creation law, those things are exactly the same. New covenant, old covenant, doesn't matter. Redemption laws, they look differently after Jesus has come. And again, I've included links for all of this so you can read more, study more about it. Look at the website later this week. Number three is the five-act play approach. And some of you who are more artistic in your thinking, you're gonna really like this approach. What it says is this, that God is telling a story. There's, there's a story being told. Five acts. The first act is creation. God makes everything good. The second act is the fall of man. We rebel, say we want to do things our way. The third act is Israel. God promising to, to bless all the nations of the world through this group. The fourth act is Jesus. Jesus shows up on the scene, preaches the kingdom, lives, dies, rises again. The fifth act is the church. And yes, there's an epilogue, the return of Jesus. So we now know how the story ends. And one uh, Bible scholar and pastor in particular from England says, I want you to imagine that you were, you were a Shakespearean expert and you find a, a, a long lost Shakespearean play and you've got the first four acts and you've got the end and the fifth act is missing. What do you do? 
You improvise. You have to act out the story in line with where you are in the story and how the story has gone up into that point. And he says, it's kind of the same for us. We don't have a script. God doesn't give us a script. Today, you're gonna say these words and tomorrow you're gonna run into that person that you just really hate and you're gonna treat them this way. Like, God doesn't give us a script. We have to, as it were, improvise daily life. But we do so in line with where we are in the story, what's happened before us and where we're going. Does that make sense? Is that helpful for some of you? I know it is for me as, as kind of an artistic sort of person. I like this idea of I, I'm now living in this fifth act and I, I don't live the same way as I lived in the first act and, and I, don't, I wouldn't live uh, in the way that they did in the third act, but, but I have to take all those things into consideration. All of this is to say, all of this is to say, God's word is unified. It is one story about Jesus. And even though there are some parts that are hard for us to understand, it doesn't mean that we should jettison the authority of the word of God. And I would dare say to you that our world needs more people, more Christians who are well-informed about the Bible so that we can respond to those types of critiques and criticisms like the one that I read to you just a minute ago. Because too often, you and I, as Christians, we're fearful and we say, oh, I guess there are people who are just being mean so I won't say anything. No, the world needs to hear the gospel of Jesus. The world needs to hear the message of his grace and his mercy and his love and his forgiveness through people who are uncompromising on their convictions that the Bible is the word of God. And so I ask you, dig deep. Don't be afraid of these tougher topics. Don't be afraid of these more uh, heady type of ideas because who knows, God might want to use you to speak words into somebody's life and then the Holy Spirit takes those words and just does something amazing with them. Now, this has been a lot on just the understanding. I wanna, I wanna bring it down home. We start to wind this up here because I want, I want really for you to understand the why. Not just what is the Bible, but why should I read the Bible? Why should I dive in? I started thinking about this and I was writing down a few notes and then I actually decided to just post it up on Facebook and ask any of my friends who regularly read the Bible, why do you read the Bible? What is it that God does in your life through your time spent in the scriptures. And so uh, I kind of distilled it down between the ones I had and the ones, the suggestions that lots of other Christian people had. I wanna give you just eight recommendations. This is not a, this is not a comprehensive list, but I think this is an important list of, of eight things that God does in our lives when we read the scriptures regularly. And I hope this is helpful for you. The first one is this, to know the character of God. To know what God is like. You wanna know what God is like? You could start by reading the book that he wrote. I had a conversation with someone a few months back where he started saying, and he literally said to me, I mean, I think that God is, and then proceeded to tell me something that didn't sound a lot like the God of the Bible. It actually sounded like him. <laughs> and I thought, that's kind of interesting. I think it's Tim Keller, pastor and author, says, if your God never disagrees with you, it's not God that you worship, but yourself. And again, if you can't say amen, you can say ouch. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> you want to know what God's like? Do you want to know what he's actually like? Do you want to go off of your own assumptions or what culture says God is like? Well, how about we get to know what God is like? And, I, and, and this isn't just to know him in like a clinical sense. This is actually to know him relationally. That as we read the scriptures, we get to know what God is like. He, he makes his presence known to us that God actually begins to feel closer to you. How many of you have felt like there have been times in the Bible when you're reading the scriptures and God has just made himself really close to you? Isn't that amazing? So we get to know the character of God. Number two, we get to know the story of redemption and its hero, Jesus. You guys, I love you. We are an incredibly self-centered people. The Bible is not about us. 
There are some preachers who will stand up and will tell you, oh, this, this book is all about you and how you can live a victorious life or whatever. And I'm here to tell you, yes, the Bible is for us. There is much to be gained in reading the scriptures, but it is about Jesus. And what's more, we are a very story-driven culture. What, you know, what are the movies that are out right now? The, the, the Star Wars saga. We're in act seven of the Star Wars saga. You know what's gonna happen? One day Jesus is gonna return, there's gonna be no more Star Wars. And you know what? I know, it's shocking. Sounds awful, right? Until you consider that the Apostle Paul says, we can't even fathom the eternal weight of glory that awaits us. We're part of the most incredible story that's ever been written. The story of God sending his son to rescue and redeem really messed up people. That's our part in the story, to rescue and redeem really messed up people through his son, Jesus. We're like stormtrooper number 318 hiding way back in the wings, but we're in the story. It's amazing. Don't get caught up in whatever other stories the culture is telling you. The, the political year, it's a drama the way, the way we've never seen before. It really, at the end of the day, is inconsequential to the story of Jesus redeeming his people. Get caught up in that story. Get caught up with that hero whose name is Jesus. It's not us. I'm preaching now. Number three, we read the Bible to battle against sin. My heart goes astray. Your heart goes astray. We want things we shouldn't want. We go places we shouldn't go. When we stay close to God in his word, we're constantly reminded of his, his, his plan for us and how he desires for us to live our lives. And God uses the scriptures to help us battle against sin. Amen? Number four, to battle us against, to battle against fear or despair or unbelief. Again, we all have these stories going on in our lives. And I don't know what's going on in everyone's lives, but there's, you know, there's political drama, there's international instability, there's a potential financial crisis. Some of you have uh, illness or, or you're facing really tough financial circumstances. Some of you have family members or friends, the relationships are all broken up. The enemy loves to come in and start to get you to fear the future, to despair that things are ever going to get better or to have no, no belief that God could actually act. When we read the scriptures, we're reminded that time and time and time and time and time and time again, God has proven himself faithful. And we don't need to give place to fear or despair or to unbelief. So God uses the scriptures to remind us of his faithfulness. Number five, to be reminded of God's love and forgiveness. How many of you need daily reminders of God's love and forgiveness? Some of you struggle with a guilty conscience. You stumble, you fall into sin, and you think, that's it, I've blown it, I've gone beyond the point where God could love me, and I've, just, I've now taken myself too far out of his grace. And then you go read something like Romans 8 that says, neither height nor depth nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor anything in all creation, and anything in all creation, by the way, includes yourself, can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Amen. You go, all right, I can move on with my day now. Take that, Satan. Number six, to gain insight and perspective on life. There's so much practical wisdom. There's so much practical good to be gained from the scriptures when we learn to live life God's way. Again, like I said earlier, the book of Proverbs or the book of James includes so much on, on how we can live our lives. The Bible's not a, a, a manual or an answer key necessarily, but there is much practical wisdom and insight to be gained. Number seven, to tell the difference between truth and lies. Somebody said to me the other day um, that they're so tired of fake articles on the internet and like 
satire sites. Like I click on things. I don't even know if it's true or if someone's pulling my leg or if it's a hoax or whatever. And then I was laughing because I was thinking, you know, this week was April Fool's Day. It's like the one day of the year that anyone is like slightly skeptical about what they read on the internet. Like, what if we actually applied that every day to the internet? The word of God is a straight edge. The word of God is a plumb line. What's truth? What's lie? You're not going to find that out by clicking around on the internet. You can find it by reading God's word. Help you have perspective to help you know when your leg is being pulled, when you're being fooled by the devil. Tell the difference between truth and lies. You want to know the difference? Read God's word. Number eight, to equip us for prayer and for praise. I like this one. I think it was my friend Ethan that first commented this one. It says, you know, sometimes you, you don't know what to pray. You run out of words. Sometimes you're not very creative or articulate and you're singing, you're praising of God. And so the scriptures, guess what, helps us to know how to do that. Last fall as a church, we, we went through the Lord's Prayer together. Remember that? Our, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We, we stood and we prayed it together every single week. Well, my three-year-old has decided that that is like an everyday thing now. So we have said the Lord's Prayer almost every single night since last August. And she's three. And she even says the debtors part and the trespasses and all that. What, what's so amazing about that to me is someday she's going to get older. Someday she's going to want to know how to pray or how to call upon the name of God. And the scriptures have actually already taught her how to do that. As we talk to God, he, he speaks to us through his word and we talk to him in prayer and in praise. We actually can be informed on how to do that by the Bible itself. And let me just close with this thought. His word is our daily bread. We need his word daily. The apostle Paul writes in Romans 15, he says, whatever was written, written, scriptures in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Life is hard. We face many challenges. We need endurance and we need the encouragement of the scriptures. And some of you feel like, well, you know, I just missed a day or I haven't read the Bible in a few days, but you know what starts to happen after a, a few days or after a few weeks and a few weeks turns into a few months and before you realize it, your soul is just dying of thirst. Just dying of thirst. A good friend of mine, I've known him since we were young kids on that Facebook thread I mentioned, he commented this and I'll close with this, this thought. There are plenty of days that I get done with my reading and I feel like I didn't get anything out of it specifically. However, the word is powerful. God's work in our lives is rarely instantaneous. In fact, the most common references in scripture compare it with the growing of fruit. How many of you have ever grown a garden? Takes a while, doesn't it? Too long. When you plant a tree, it takes consistent water in order to grow and eventually produce fruit. The days that it doesn't feel significant are like days when you can't tell anything happened by watering your tree. But in being faithful to drink of that water, I have been rooted deep and have seen the fruit of the Spirit increase in my life. Amen and amen. Sound City, may we be a people of the word. May you as individuals be people of the word. May we as community groups be people of the word. May we as a church be people of the word, faithfully committed to and grounded in the scriptures for as long as he lets us be a church. Amen? Amen. I want to call us to a time of response now. We're going to respond in a variety of ways uh, through the giving of our tithes and offerings. I'd like to invite the financial stewards to come forward and collect the offering now if they would. 
And while they're collecting the offering, let me just say to any of you who are guests or visitors, please don't feel weird or like there's an obligation, like you have to give. This is something we're gonna do as worship to God. And if you want information about how to give online or text to give, that's on your handout that you were given as well. While they're doing that, let me read some questions, some things to help us with discussion this week uh, in our homes or community groups. Number one, do you struggle to understand parts of the Bible? Does the Old Testament, for example, feel foreign or familiar? Share those challenges with your group. Let's be honest about it, okay? And I'm, I'm just asking all of us to firmly commit to one another in our groups that we're gonna not judge one another. Somebody says, oh, I haven't read my Bible in seven months. Please don't gasp. Say, hey, let me help you. Let's, let's start reading together, okay? Number two, of the eight reasons listed as to why we should read the Bible, which ones stood out to you? Which ones were new thoughts to you? And, and what other reasons might there be? Like I said, it's not necessarily a comprehensive list. There might be other things that God uses the scriptures for in your heart and life. And then number three, do you struggle to read the Bible regularly? Why or why not? And if needed, make a plan with members of your group and help one another be accountable to follow the plan. You think we could help each other? Talk about what we're reading. Talk about, hey, I missed some this week, but I really want to be faithfully reading the Bible so I'm shaped by that more than culture, more than TV, whatever it might be. Some things to pray about because we love, as much as we love the scriptures, we love to pray as well. Things to pray about. Thank God that he has given us his word to teach and to transform us. Just praise him for it. Number two, pray that God, uh, pray that Sound City would always be grounded as a church in God's word that we would never stray from the truth of his word. And then number three, pray for non-Christians that you know who may have questions about the Bible. And this is a dangerous prayer, you ready? Pray that God would give you opportunities to share the scriptures with them. I know. Somebody is gonna come into your life and they say, and I just, reading this one part of the Bible, it totally doesn't even make sense. And you're gonna say, oh, well, let me help you. Let me help you, let me help you wrestle through it. I pray that you get to have that experience. What a joy it is to see the Holy Spirit do that work in somebody else. So pray that if you'd be brave. We're gonna celebrate the Lord's table. This is for Christians. If you are a Christian, you are wel um, welcome to join us at the table, even if you're a guest or visiting with us. If you're not a Christian, the invitation is, is very simple. Either just observe and, and think about this celebration, why it's so important to us, or even better, trust in Jesus. Believe that his word is true. Believe that everything he said was true and, and then join us at the table to receive his grace. The bread reminding us of Jesus' broken body. The wine reminding us of his blood that was spilled out. And today, as you taste of the bread, I pray that you would think of those words about his word being our daily bread. As we eat of this bread and drink of the cup and we're feasting on, on Jesus, just know that his word is what feeds us in our soul. And we're gonna sing. Elizabeth and the team is gonna lead us in some songs. This first one is, is a song that actually comes from the book of Jude. We're actually gonna sing almost, you know, the entire book of Jude in one song. Uh, so congratulations on that, Sound City. That's amazing. But here's the deal. These are words that come from the scripture. And they call us to remember the story, the redemptive work that God has done in and through Jesus. And so I invite you to sing loudly and lift up your voices and really celebrate. Let's, let's stand together, if you would, I'll pray. And we'll begin our time of singing in response. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. God, even though we are prone to wander, you've given us your word as a firm foundation for our feet. God, I ask and pray right now that as we sing and as we receive from the Lord's table, I pray that you would strengthen our faith. God, for those of us who have struggled to um, submit our lives to the authority that you exercise through your word, I pray you'd give us uh, your grace to do so. 
God, for those of us who are maybe confused by or, or struggle to understand the scriptures, I pray you'd give us insight and clarity. And God, for all of us, may we see and savor and love and treasure Jesus in incredible ways today and every day hereafter. And we pray this all in his good name. Amen.